Welcome to the Storytelling with Data podcast, where listeners around the world learn to be better storytellers and presenters. We'll cover a wide range of topics that will help you effectively show and tell your data stories. So get ready to separate yourself from the mess of 3D exploding pie charts and deliver knockout presentations. And with that, here's Cole. It's January as I sit down to record this episode, and this is a time of year when I like to plan. I take a look at the kids' school calendar, I plan our vacations for the year, I plan my personal goals, I plan goals for the business, storytelling with data, the quarterly objectives that we always do, but also looking out with a longer time horizon. And now, if I didn't do all of this planning, a lot of this stuff would probably still happen. But by being thoughtful, planful, intentional at the onset, I basically guarantee that I'm going to accomplish what I want to. It's a way of setting things up for success. It turns out being planful ahead of creating the content we're going to communicate, our presentations, does exactly the same thing. It puts us in a fantastic place for ensuring that our message gets across, our audience feels engaged, and we're able to drive the ultimate action that we seek. It's common when you get done with an analysis or a project to want to turn straight to your tools. Open up PowerPoint or Keynote and start creating slides. That process feels very productive. And when we do that, we probably make something that meets some of the needs. But by pausing first and doing some careful planning before we turn to our tools, we set ourselves up for success in a wholly different way. And that is what I want to talk more about today. How do you take some time planning up front to create really strong presentations? And I say presentations, but here I'm talking about any sort of material that you're going to be communicating. There's one important distinction that I often draw, and that is between the exploratory analysis and the explanatory, where exploratory is that process. You may start off with a question or you may not. You may just have data or a topic that you are digging into to try to better understand it to figure out what might be interesting or important, what you need to communicate to someone else. Once you've identified what you need to communicate, that is when we transition into the explanatory part of things. And that's where we're going to focus on today. You've done your analysis, you've done your project, you know what you want to communicate, just need to figure out how you're going to do it and be thoughtful about it. And I'll be talking here about slides and a presentation, but again, the topics we're going to talk about, the type of planning you can do, really is going to apply to pretty much any sort of content that you're going to be creating. There is also a lot of planning to be done on the delivery front and preparing ourselves for that communication. We're not going to talk about that specifically today, but I will point you to some resources on that front a little bit later. When it comes to our planning, one of the first things that we want to do is get really clear on what we want to communicate. 
the overarching message. I sometimes think of this as if someone were to close their computer or walk out of a room after reading your presentation or listening to you present, this is the thing that they would remember. And I often talk about this in terms of the big idea. Big idea has a couple of components. It should articulate your point of view, meaning it should be what you think about the topic or the thing that your audience needs to know, not just a generalization. It should convey what's at stake, which you can think of in positive framing. Uh, you know, here is what will go right if your audience acts in the way that you think they should. Or the negative framing. Here are the risks or the things that could go wrong if your audience doesn't act accordingly. And then finally, the big idea should be a complete sentence. And now embedded in this is the idea that it be a single sentence, which is actually one of the most powerful components of the big idea. It means you take everything you know about what you want to communicate, which when we're close to our work is typically quite a lot. And we become close to these details. We become attached to these details. And that is one of the most important reasons for getting it down to something concise. Because while you need all of the context and background information and you need to have dug into all of the different questions, your audience doesn't necessarily need all of that information. So part of culling things down a lot is to switch things from your perspective to your audiences, to turn things on their head and think about what you need to communicate for them, for your audience. What are they going to care about? Why does it matter to them? So getting things concise forces us to be really focused when it comes to this. And really that conveying what's at stake piece is what needs to be from our audience's perspective. Because if you can convey the risk or the benefit in a way that speaks to your audience directly, that's how you get their attention. That's how you get them to care and ultimately to act. And now it is difficult to go from everything you know on a given topic to a single sentence. And so we've constructed something that helps you with this, which is the Big Idea Worksheet. And it's just a single page that, for me, I like to print out so that I can get a pen and physically write on it. Uh, it ignites a different part of my brain, I think, when I'm actually putting something physical, a pen, to the paper. And it walks you through the different components of the Big Idea, starting out with who your audience is, and actually encouraging you to start by maybe casting a broader net, but then getting quite narrow in terms of if you could narrow things down to a specific group of people or maybe even an individual to whom you need to communicate, who would that be? And even if you're not ultimately going to be communicating to only one person or a small group, it just frames things in your mind so that you can be really conscious when it comes to how you're framing your message, what you ultimately plan to include versus exclude, 
and again, really gets us thinking first and foremost about our audience. So it gets you narrow on your audience, then has you think from your audience's perspective about what's at stake, both the risks and the benefits. And I find it can be useful to work through both of these things to then see which seems like it will be most compelling for your audience. One thing that can actually be useful when it comes to this, and I've given this tip before, but is to take things out to the extreme. So if you think of the positive side, the benefits, if your audience does what you think they should, then what great thing happens? And what good thing happens as a result of that? And so on and so forth. And you can play this out. And if you go all the way out, you'll end up with world peace or, you know, domination in your industry or, or whatever the ultimate great thing is. And then you can do this same exercise in the negative direction of what negative thing, what bad thing happens if your audience doesn't take in the information, doesn't act in the way that you want them to, what breaks? And then what bad thing happens as a result of that? And then what even worse thing happens after that? And as you play this out to extreme, you end up with you know, some really doomsday-like scenario. And now if you take those extremes, are either of them likely to play out Probably not, but it's by doing this exercise and then figuring out how far to back off to be realistic and compelling for the situation at hand that we really get to a good place where we can connect with and impel or incite our audience to act. Because I find in some cases our tendency is to go too extreme where you know we're chicken little and the sky is falling and nobody's going to listen to us because we've gone too far. In other instances though, and I would say I see this more often, people aren't going far enough downstream when it comes to the good things or the bad things that are going to happen. And again, this is all about being compelling for your audience and really thinking about things from their point of view which is harder than it sounds. It's really easy for us to communicate for ourselves, for our data, for our project, for our analysis. It's a more challenging thing to try to put on the mindset of the people to whom we are communicating and do things for them. And the big idea, thinking about them, getting our message down to a single sentence is a really great way to do that. Uh, I'll link to the big idea worksheet in the show notes so you can download that and use it when you think it will be effective. One cool thing that happens is once you've taken a few minutes to formulate your big idea, now you have what ends up being like a guiding north star when it comes to planning your actual communication in terms of what content do you include and what do you let go of. Or what becomes supporting material versus part of the main story? And when it comes to actually making some of those decisions, I want to shift next to a, another strategy, which is storyboarding. Storyboarding is creating a visual outline of our content before we create any actual content. And it's a step in the process that used to have to happen because putting things into a graph or a slide took 
tools and experts and time. So we had to really be thoughtful about how we spent that time. Whereas today, it's much easier to just open up our graphing application or presentation software and start creating without the so what in mind. So enforcing a low-tech step before that, uh, storyboarding will help us be more thoughtful and planful so that by the time we get to PowerPoint or Keynote, we're doing so with a plan. And we can be more efficient as a result of that with our time and our attention. Storyboarding, I like to break into a couple of different pieces. I start by brainstorming. And if you listen to me or follow storytelling with data at all, you are fully aware that some of our favorite tools come in the form of sticky notes. I am a fan of the small post-its. They're like two by two inch, roughly, squares. Uh, I get them in a variety of colors. And when I storyboard, I put myself in a different position than I typically am working. Oftentimes, I'll be on the floor in my office, or sometimes I'll get up and just walk around to the other side of the desk. There's something just about having a different perspective as I do this that I think can be freeing. And I start by brainstorming, where I write down one idea per sticky note. And these will be things that might eventually make it into my slide deck or my report or blog post or book, depending on what I'm planning for. Or they might not. I don't have to edit as I go. That's going to be another step that we'll talk about in a moment. Really, the first step is just getting ideas out of my head out onto paper where I can consider them, I can move them around, I can plan to keep them or eliminate them. Uh, and so I typically spend about five or 10 minutes just getting the ideas out. And you'll find that they'll flow for a few minutes. And then as you start to slow down, keep at it for a bit longer. Sometimes this is when really creative ideas can come. And what you actually write on the sticky notes can take a variety of forms. It might be data that you think you might include or relevant context, action steps that will come later, different analyses or research that you did as part of the project, examples or uh, analogies, stories, anecdotes. Don't limit yourself at this point. This can also be something that's great to do as part of a team if you are working on something together or even do the brainstorming part individually and then bring the ideas together as you start to plan the communication. So once you've spent five or ten minutes brainstorming, then you start editing and moving things around. You may still add ideas at that point. That's totally fine. You should definitely discard ideas at this point. And I think that's one of the most beautiful effects of storyboarding is intentionally discarding potential content. And this is where your big idea can come in to mind, where if you're debating including or not, a certain piece of content, you can ask yourself, does this help me in some way get my big idea across to my audience? And if it doesn't, you know, it might be relevant or interesting, but it 
if it doesn't serve your ultimate purpose, then you want to think about discarding it. If you really can't let it go, you could push it back to the appendix and not worry about spending a ton of time there. But actually letting it go, discarding it, putting it in the recycling bin can be really freeing. And I think that's one of the things that happens when we turn straight to our tools is the feeling that whatever we create needs to answer any possible question that might come up. And true, you may need to know the answer to that question, but it doesn't mean everything that's relevant or everything that you looked at as part of your process needs to be in the eventual communication. And in fact, that is the value that we provide when we're putting together a communication is from everything we know, we are curating the path along which we take our audience. Editing is the second step of the storyboarding process, and be ruthless here. I sometimes will find that I write down the same idea five times and discard it five times because it takes that process of internal dialogue, of debating, and maybe me arguing with myself of whether something needs to belong in the deck. But that process of discarding means I'm intentionally deciding, no, it doesn't need to be. I don't have to answer every question. I'm going to curate for my audience a story for them. And that's the next piece that comes. So you've edited, and part of that is also organizing your ideas. And so this could mean you add categories, group together ideas on similar topics, and you may start to see a storyline here. And I'll just mention that the most common way that we organize ideas when it comes to something like this initially is a chronologic or linear order. Uh, for example, if we're communicating the results of a data analysis, we might start off with a question we posed, maybe some context around why it was interesting, then where we got the data, what we did to analyze the data, and our findings. If you think about it, it makes sense that this is where we start because it's our experience of the process. But when it comes to our audience and what we need to communicate, we don't necessarily have to take them through it in that chronological order. And in fact, there can be value in fully flipping that on its head and starting with the ending in some cases. And so that's one of the benefits of planning in this low-tech fashion. It's one of the reasons I like sticky notes, because they're small, which forces me to be concise with my ideas. But maybe more than that, they're mobile. I can unstick something from one place and move it around, which means I can explore different narrative flows. And I always encourage you, once you have your ideas out and you have some sort of order that you've put around them, ask yourself, what would this look like if I jumbled it up? Where else could I start? What would that look like? And what might that achieve? And this is where you can start to think about some of the trade-offs of doing things how you might typically versus trying something different. Or even organizationally, oftentimes there is a general approach that is followed and accepted. And so you can weigh when does it make sense to follow people's expectations when it comes to that? 
And when might there be value? When could you maybe get attention in a different way or start a conversation sooner in the process? Where might there be value of some sort by flipping things around and approaching them differently? If, by the way, that makes you uncomfortable, you can think ahead to when you are actually communicating this, how you can frame that so that it calls it out and both makes you more comfortable, but sets your audience's expectations in the right way as well. Where you can actually say, hey folks, today I'm going to try something a little different. I'm going to start with what we found, what we're asking of you. And from there, we can get back into the methodology, or I'm happy to answer questions along the way, but I wanna kick us off with this lens of what we really wanna talk about. And so these are some of the things that you can assess in a really thoughtful manner when you do it up front, when you stay low tech. And one of the big benefits of this is it's easy to change course. You can try out these different paths, right? You can look chronologically, you could try starting with the ending, and there are, of course, many variations in between. And you can test these out and by testing them out, I just mean like try them on, look at what it would be. Uh, imagine how you would fare in the ultimate presentation, starting with the ending or starting in the middle and think through what that would look like so that you can understand when that might make sense and when it doesn't without fully committing. If you're ever unsure, it's another beauty of doing things low tech up front is you can get feedback at this juncture. Get feedback from colleagues, talk them through potential approaches, go through pros and cons with them to get another perspective, or to go to your manager and say, this is rough, but here's what I'm thinking, and get confirmation at that point, either that yes, you're on the right track, execute, or no, I don't think that's a good idea. Let's go along this different path. And so you can be thoughtful about trying different approaches or assessing different approaches to potentially try. And I'll raise another tip that is advice I've given before, but when you are planning to try something that is significantly different from what you've done before or is markedly different from how things are typically done in your group or at your organization, try it in low risk places first. Try it in places where you are likely to be successful or have patience of the people to whom you're communicating. Because it's by being thoughtful about where we try to push for change or where we do things differently, being thoughtful about it, that we can do it in places where it will work and learn from that versus going into some high stakes, critical scenario and having that backfire and have irreparable damage. So anything you're trying that feels countercultural or scary in some way, but there's a compelling reason that you want to do it, that you want to try it, think about where you can do that, where you are likely to be met with success. And again, this is one of those places where if you're ever uncertain, soliciting feedback, talking through it with others can be a great way to assess and determine whether that makes sense in the given scenario, or if you might want to save that for another time.
Uh, one low-risk place, by the way, is if your immediate team has any sort of regular meetings, right, a weekly sync of some sort, you can practice different approaches in that setting and actually ask for feedback on how that goes. We've talked about the order and the flow and the benefit of having sticky notes that you can move around to assess that. Started with chronological, talked about leading with the ending. Another thing you can consider at this point is actual story and the narrative arc as a potential structure for your presentation. And so the narrative arc starts off with a plot. Then tension is introduced. This tension builds over the course of a rising action. It meets a point of climax. Then there's falling action and a resolution. So when I think about the narrative arc in the context of a business communication, that plot is the context, the baseline information that your audience needs to know so that they're ready to take in what's coming. Then there's tension. And it's never about making up the tension. If you have something that is worth communicating, there is some sort of tension in the scenario. And if it's unclear, this is a point where you can come back pretty directly to the big idea and what's at stake. And again, that's what's at stake for your audience. And there's tension somewhere likely within that. So then it's about identifying that tension, bringing it to light to the extent that makes sense for your scenario, for your audience. And then the falling action could be how things play out across different business units. It could be solutions that you looked into as potential options. There's a variety of things that could buffer from that point of maximum tension, the climax, to the ending. The ending I think about as what the audience can do or what they should do now in light of this tension that you've brought to light and the information that you've shared along the way. This is that bias toward action or coming back to the big idea and thinking about it in the framing of, you know, the, your audience leaves the room. What's the one thing they remember if they are meant to act in some way, which oftentimes they are once you're at the point of communicating to them, that's where you want to leave them in terms of the ending, what your audience can do to resolve the tension that you've brought to light. It doesn't mean that you have to necessarily build up to it in that way. I think that's where we get a ton of flexibility when it comes to how we arrange our stories for our communication, for our audience, where you could think about leading with the ending and then still going through that arc and recapping it at the end or leaving some piece out so that there's a bit of mystery or something unresolved that helps keep your audience's attention. But again, the point here, uh, stepping back, is just to be thoughtful about both what content we include when it comes to our communication and what we create, and in what order we plan to take people through it, and how that will work in terms of how we're presenting and who we are presenting to. So thinking through some of these, getting feedback on them, then brings us to the place where we can actually start in our tools. <laughs> and I've talked a lot already, but 
the things that I've talked about so far don't actually take a lot of time. Crafting the big idea, thinking about our audience, getting things down to a sentence, you can really spend about five, 10 minutes doing that. And then storyboarding, brainstorming, editing, arranging, assessing different flows. That's another 10, 15, maybe 20 minutes. So then at the end of this, let's say half an hour, you now have a plan of attack. And that plan of attack helps keep you on track and helps make the process of actually creating content much more efficient. And you're creating content always with your goal in mind of getting that big idea, that compelling message across to your audience, which means your content is going to be more effective as a result of that. So now it's time to turn to our tools, but we're not quite yet going to start designing slides because there is an important step that you can take to bring your low-tech planning into your tools to help make sure that the uh, efficiency that you're gaining and the planning that you've done doesn't get lost. So I often, at this point, I'll have my storyboard. If I've done it on the floor or on the opposite side of my desk, I'll get a big piece of paper and just re-stick things in the right order onto the paper so that I can then bring it around to the computer side of my desk. And I'll open up PowerPoint or open up the thing I'm going to create. But rather than fill in content and start designing, if I'm in PowerPoint, I'll actually go to slide sorter view. And what I'll do is start transcribing the content of my sticky notes into just the slide title space of the slides. And there's a step you can do at this point, which is to turn the ideas on your sticky notes, if they aren't already, into takeaway titles. And this is where if someone were to read just the title of your slides or just the sticky notes, it will tell the overarching story. And it's going to do it in an active way, not a passive or descriptive manner. I find that oftentimes when we title slides, it is in a descriptive manner where the title says what's going to be on the slide. For example, the title might say Q4 budget, uh, which is the what, but it's much more interesting if we switch that around to the so what or to answer the so what. Q4, we came in above budget or Q4, we were well under budget. It frames the something interesting about what's coming on the slide. And then what you can do is you read through just the slide titles is you get that overarching story. And it's a way of taking things from the low-tech storyboarding, the planning into our tools. So again, we stay organized, we stay focused, and everything we're building is with the idea of getting our message across to our audience. One thing to consider as you are bringing things into your tools is what the design is going to look like. And I'll just mention, I said earlier that you shouldn't be focused on the design at this point, but there is a decision point when it comes to aesthetically what your communication is going to look like. For example, you know, what colors, what fonts are your slides going to use? 
Now, in some cases, those decisions have been made for you. You may have a template that you are required to use as part of your team, part of your organization. If that's the case, be happy. That means far fewer decisions that you have to make. If you do need to design your slides, rather than go into that here, I'm going to offer up a resource, which is Storytelling with You. A plan, create, and deliver a stellar presentation in chapter five of the book, which is the first chapter in the create section, I talk both about this process of bringing things from your low-tech planning into your tools and also how to think about design when you are starting from scratch and needing also to plan the look and feel of your communication. So I'll make sure to link to that in the show notes. Once you get your titles in, now is the time when you can really start fleshing out content and individual slides. And one of the nice things at this point is once you've got your framework there, you know what the overall structure looks like, you can bounce around and start filling things in. You don't necessarily have to go from start to finish. This also can be useful if you are putting together a communication as part of a team where if together you do the process of storyboarding and then somebody takes that, puts it into the slide template with the titles, then you can farm out different parts of that presentation to the different contributors. And you know that it's all going to feel cohesive when it comes back together because you've got that structure already in place. And now if needed, you can bounce back to low tech at this point and get in a room with a whiteboard or a shared document if you're not co-located to mock up individual slides and what might go there or where data fits in, even sketch what graphs might look like. Again, to make that effort of then creating the content that much more efficient for the individuals who are involved. We've talked about a few strategies, crafting our big idea, storyboarding both to vet content and look at different narrative flows. Uh, we turned our ideas into action or takeaway titles and put those into our slide titles before we started developing content. Each of these steps gets us thinking critically about what we're including and why we're including it. And this bit of planning up front just really can help us make communications that are more targeted and more efficient and effective at getting our message across to a way that makes sense to our audience. I solicited questions related to the topic of creating presentations on social media and received a number of questions. The strategies that I've discussed already, I think, do address a number of them, but I still want to go through them and draw those connections explicitly. Alex asks, as a manager, I have to give my team feedback. They get so frustrated when they have to go back to the drawing board after sharing their slides with me. How can I give better feedback so this frustration doesn't happen? I would say rather than reframe the messaging, like, because that always feels bad if somebody has spent time putting together something that they think might be final and they're proud to show it and then the feedback is, nope, back to the drawing board, is try to get them to show work earlier in the process. If storyboarding becomes part of your normal nomenclature as a team, if it becomes part of the process that you go through, you can have people 
solicit your input at that low tech point, because then you can give feedback where they've not put in all the time and work and less attachment to a product has been formed. And I think a great way to get your team comfortable with this, because it can feel, I don't know, it can feel not great maybe to show something that's unfinished, that's in a rough, unpolished shape. But that's actually really where you want to get directional input versus when something's already been refined. So if you can model that for your team, take an example where you're going to be giving a presentation and rather than come to them afterwards and recap how it went and show them the final deck, show them part of the planning that goes into it and get their input at that point. Low tech, low fidelity, sketches, this is the point at which directional feedback is most accepted and most useful. So as a manager, I think model that for your team and encourage touch points that are earlier in the process. Rob's challenge is the blank page and simply knowing where to start. I think that's a beauty of using some of the strategies that we've talked about today, because if you're starting with a big idea worksheet, there's already stuff on the page. It's not blank. There are some specific questions to work through so that you get the pieces of the puzzle basically there. And then at the end, you're asked to put those pieces together into the big idea. So you're always working with something. And with the storyboarding, your post-it notes are small, so they're just a little bit of space waiting to be filled, not an entire slide. And by doing some brainstorming up front in piecemeal ways like this, you basically never encounter a blank page or a totally empty slide deck because you always have something from the process you've just done in the step before that you pull forward. And so it just can help with momentum. It can help from any sort of block or feeling stuck. Say if you do through the process, find places where you feel stuck. That's a great point to either take a break, go for a walk or turn your attention to something else. Give things some temporal space to be able to go back to sometimes just a little bit of a break. You'll have uh, renewed energy when you go back. Or grab a colleague or friend or someone else and pull them into the process and have a conversation. Those things can unstick you when you're stuck. Jean asks, how do you make it engaging and get your audience to stick with you until the end? And I hope this has been apparent through everything that we've talked through today. But the way that you make your audience care is to think about them and to frame what you're doing for them. So when you've made it about your audience instead of yourself, they're naturally going to care. And if you don't think you can maintain their attention, then there's something more fundamental that's missing. It, you know, If it's a case where you need their attention and you're not sure you can get it, that's where you want to really be thoughtful about whether you really need to communicate everything you are planning. How can you pick the pieces out that your audience is going to care about? And if there really are other things that need to come in for some reason, how do you embed those around the pieces that your audience is going to care about so that you can get your needs accomplished at the same time? 
I realize that's much easier to say than to do, but I think really thinking about things from your audience's perspective, if you can grab a member of your audience or someone who is similar to them, talk to them to better understand where they're coming from, the more you can make what you need to have happen overlap with what your audience cares about or what they want to have happen, the better positioned you're going to be. Jackie says she finds it challenging figuring out what to include and what to cut before making slides that don't quite fit and tailoring to shorter and longer formats. So the cutting piece, again, the storyboarding can be really useful here where you are constantly asking yourself, does this piece of content help me achieve my goal? Does it help me get my big idea across? And doing that planning step, arranging your story, then pulling it into the slides, it basically keeps this challenge from arising because you've figured out what you're going to be creating before you've made the slide that doesn't quite fit. And now every once in a while, you'll still make the slide that doesn't quite fit. But probably you learned something from that that will ultimately be useful, ultimately make your presentation stronger. And I'll mention also at this point that by doing this thoughtful planning, it gets the pieces of the story and the story in your mind in a way that's ultimately going to make you better when it comes to actually communicating as well. So the planning not only helps make for stronger materials, but helps set you up with the foundation for success when it comes to communicating those materials as well. <laughs> Speaking of communicating, one more question. Steven says, help. I followed all your strategies, but still can't seem to cut my filler words. Is there anything else I can try? Uh, filler words. <laughs> filler words are the clutter in our speech, much like unnecessary visual elements on a graph or a slide. I'm going to spend a few minutes here and share some additional tips. So I'll say at best, they're superfluous. At worst, they can significantly detract from our message, making us sound unprepared, uncertain, lacking confidence. And in a similar way to how reducing visual clutter can sharpen the focus of a graph, eliminating filler words from what we say can markedly improve the clarity and impact of our verbal communications. So it is really important to consciously remove these verbal distractions, whether in casual conversations, formal interviews, high stakes presentations. Banishing filler words isn't just an exercise in eloquence. It's a commitment to effective communication. Let's talk about eight tips for curbing your use of filler words. First, Build awareness and practice pausing. Become aware of your own speech patterns and recognize when you tend to use filler words. Instead of using that unnecessary word or phrase, practice pausing. It feels awkward at first, but it sounds so much more confident and actually gives you a moment to collect your thoughts. Related to this, and particularly as you are trying to determine if you're unaware what your filler words are or when you are using them, record and review. This is the second tip. 
This could be a practice presentation or even a casual conversation. Record yourself speaking. Listen to the recording and note when and how often you use filler words. There's a video I have where I outline some specific protocols when it comes to recording yourself. I'll make sure I share that in the show notes. Another tip is to simply slow down. Speaking too quickly can lead to more fillers as your voice tries to keep up with your thoughts. Slowing down your speech to give yourself time to think and reduce the need to fill spaces with unnecessary words can be a great trick. Another tip, practice, practice, practice. Like any skill, reducing filler words takes practice. You can rehearse your speeches or presentations, and when you do that, focus on eliminating fillers. Over time, you'll find it easier to speak without them. I personally am a big proponent of practicing aloud because you can just hear yourself in a different manner and form connections in how you speak that can give you different routes to take so that you're not trying to remember something specific next and, and grasping for filler words in the meantime. Another tip would be to seek feedback. Ask a friend, family member, or colleague to listen to you speak and give you feedback on your use of filler words. Sometimes others can identify issues that we miss ourselves. So if you make others aware of specific words you want to eliminate, they can help raise your awareness in casual conversations as well. Use silence strategically. Become comfortable with silence. Pausing is a powerful tool in speech. It can both allow your audience to absorb what you've said and give you time to think about what to say next. When it comes to that, you can also consider practice mindful speaking. Practice this sort of mindfulness in daily conversations. Be extra conscious of your words and speak deliberately. This mindfulness can carry over into more formal speaking situations too. And finally, set specific goals. For instance, you might aim to reduce filler words by a certain percentage in your next presentation. Having concrete goals can help motivate you to focus more on eliminating them as well as be able to see and appreciate your success. By incorporating some of these strategies into your daily speaking habits, you can significantly reduce the use of filler words and enhance the clarity and effectiveness of your spoken communication. And the eight tips I shared were from a blog post that we recently put up on our site. I'll include the link to that article in our show notes in case you'd like to refer to it. In closing, to set yourself up for success when it comes to presenting and creating presentations, spend time planning. And it doesn't mean that you have to do all of this every time. The more of it you do, the better your communication is going to be. But be smart about how you spend your time. Focus on the strategies that are going to be most helpful for you and your situation. Once materials are done, you should, of course, also spend time on yourself. Uh, so I will say if you enjoyed this podcast, the next one you should for sure check out is Prepare to Present. 
So once you have your materials set, focusing on you and the role that you play communicating can be a fantastic next step. I'll link to that in the show notes. Before I wrap, a couple quick updates. Our 2024 public workshop calendar is live. We have our four-hour virtual storytelling with data workshop on February 1st, that's 2024, and our two-hour storytelling with slides will be on March the 6th. Use the code PODCAST10, that's PODCAST10, for 10% off. It's at storytellingwithdata.com slash workshops. We have a special promo running now through January 31st for going premium in our online storytelling with data community three months free when you subscribe to an annual subscription. That means just $2.99 for your first year. Check with your manager. Oftentimes you can use learning and development budget for this. It will gain you access to data storyteller office hours, monthly live events, and our full library of video learning. That's at community.storytellingwithdata.com premium. We have an upcoming Q&A with university instructors in late February. Details on that and all of our resources for university instructors can be found at storytellingwithdata.com university. If you like to learn via video, check out the Storytelling with Data YouTube channel. And if you've enjoyed what you've heard here today, don't forget to subscribe and share with a friend. Thanks very much for listening.